You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Hello. Oh, sorry. Hello, I'm Keegan. Um, I'm going to be reading scripture today, uh, Genesis chapter 26, 1 through 11. Uh, it should be on page 14 in the chair back Bibles in front of you. So if you want to stand with me, please, as we read, that'd be great. Right. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to, the Abim- to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offsprings I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offsprings as the stars of heaven and will give your offsprings all these lands. And in your offsprings all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest of the men of the place shall kill me, because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When we had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people may have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Pray with me now. Lord, I pray that you can open our hearts to your word today. And teach us something we may not have noticed before. And I pray you bless Mr. Eberline and give him the right words to speak your name. We pray. Amen. Thank you, Keegan. Good morning, everybody. Uh, As Craig mentioned, uh, my name is Nathan Eberline and I'm one of the elders here at Mill Creek. And uh, when our staff uh, signed up for the conference for this weekend, I volunteered to fill the pulpit today. Um, I am a lawyer by training, and uh, this actually came in handy as I was preparing the text today. When I had my first day of law school uh, in my very first contracts class, Professor Carrasco handed me a document and said, Mr. Eberlein, you please leave the room, take 10, 15 minutes, review this document, come back and tell me whether or not this is a contract. He immediately went right into his lecture and started teaching the class all about the document that I was supposed to go out and study. So I came back after 10, 15 minutes and he started peppering me with questions. And all of my eager classmates stood there waving their hands knowing the answers and I knew none of it. I quickly learned that law school is not for the faint of heart. And uh, my professor used that exercise to set up the class to spend the rest of the year discussing what is a contract. And understanding man-made contracts helps us to better understand what we're going to look at today in Genesis 26. 
One other thing that I learned in that contracts class is that a contract is a meeting of the minds between multiple people where both sides exchange something of value. We could dicker on the definition, but that's pretty much the gist of it. In many ways, the idea of the man-made covenant echoes the idea of covenant in the Bible. So let's dig into 26 and see where God makes a deal with Isaac. So we have four main takeaways from today's section. And the first is that when circumstances are bleak, God is faithful. In the book of Genesis, Isaac spends most of his time in three locations. Be'er Lahai Roy, we saw that last week in Genesis 25, Gerar, which we're looking at today in 26, and then Beersheba, and that is the um, place that is the starting point for today's um, passage. Isaac was born in Beersheba, spent his early days there. After he marries Rebecca, he moves to Be'er Lahai Roy, and then we see in verse 1 of the section, a famine drove Isaac and Rebekah from Berlahai Roy to Gerar. You can see all those places up in the land, uh, up on the map. Uh, this famine was not only severe, but it was reminiscent of the famines that Isaac's father Abraham once experienced in Genesis 12 and again in Genesis 20. So during the first famine, Abraham took his family to Egypt. And in the second, Abraham went to Gerar. And once this famine arrives, Isaac similarly begins a nomadic journey, and he is heading to Egypt by way of Gerar. But as he's going there, God appears to Isaac and instructs him to stay in that land. And here is where the idea of a contract comes into play. God says to Isaac in verses 2 and 3, have I got a deal for you. All you need to do is stay away from Egypt and instead sojourn in this land. Sojourn simply means to stay in a place temporarily. Uh, when Tara and I were in law school, we had two separate sojourns in Wichita where her law firm was based. Uh, we knew that it was only going to be for a temporary period, but that was still our home. Uh, so God tells Isaac, sojourn in Gerar. In exchange, God says, I will do the following. I will bless you and your offspring. I will give you these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will, give to you, I will give to your offspring these lands. Finally, God tells Isaac, in your offspring, I will bless all the nations of the earth. God continues to note that he is doing this kindness because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. God always keeps his word. So if the original agreement in Genesis 12 between God and Abraham was and is absolute, why did God reframe the same promise to Isaac? As Wayne Grudem explains in Systemic Theology, since the creation of the world, God's relationship to man has been defined by specific requirements and promises. God tells people how he wants them to act and also makes promises about how he will act in various circumstances. This description sounds similar to the idea of the contracts that are at the core of our legal system today. The people involved make an agreement that sets the conditions of the relationship, which both sides expect to be unchangeable. Let me repeat that line. Both sides expect to be unchangeable. 
In today's world, man-made agreements seldom seem to be truly unchangeable. Before our son was born, Tara and I moved to a new house. We had a deal in place with another couple uh, that had agreed to buy our old house, but they backed out with no explanation. And at the last minute, uh, we were scrambling with two houses and a newborn, which is not an ideal situation for two sleep-deprived parents. This agreement failed because one side didn't do what they promised to do. I'm certain if I pulled the room, many of you would have similar stories where you had an agreement or a relationship that fell apart when someone didn't stick to their word. This universal experience of people not doing what they say they will do is at the core of why God restated his promise to Isaac. There seems to be two practical reasons why. First, the promise reassured Isaac. God is showing that he is trustworthy in his promises. At first glance to us reading the story thousands of years later, just on its face, this deal must have seemed like a heck of a deal. In verses 3 and 4, they show God promising blessings, land, and offspring. Isaac surely knew that God had already made this covenant with Abraham, but Isaac must have been wondering whether this deal was actually as good as it originally sounded. After all, he was already living in the promised land that he didn't actually own, and it was now beset with famine, something that was both severe and had happened on two previous occasions. He then packed up his family and started caravanning toward Egypt. And at some point, doing all of this packing up of the camels under the hot blazing sun, he must have surely thought, what have I gotten myself into? A promise is a good thing, particularly when it's promises of blessing, land, and fruitfulness. But a promise without proof becomes mere words. Fortunately for us, God's promises are never merely words. And his restatement of this promise likely reassured Isaac that God would indeed keep his promise. After reading this section, theologian Matthew Henry wrote some advice that was true for Isaac and is true for Christians today. Those who live by faith have need often to review and repeat to themselves the promises they are to live upon, especially when they are called to any instance of suffering or self-denial. If we let ourselves grow consumed by the state of our surroundings in this fallen world, two things are likely to happen. One, we will be devoured by worry, which is what we see all around us. Jesus specifically instructed his followers that worry is not to be a trait of Christians. Isaac modeled faithfulness and trust during his initial response to the famine, which is an example that we also should follow. Another thing that happens when we grow consumed by earthly worries is that we lose sight of God's promises. As Matthew Henry noted, we must read about God's beautiful promises and keep our focus there, not on the happenings around us. God was gracious in repeating his promise that he previously made to Abraham. God made a covenant of great hope, and that must have stirred Isaac's heart, and it should stir our hearts today for those who are part of Christ's family. God's restatement of his promise provided reassurance to Isaac to address Isaac's circumstances. The second reason why God restated his promise to Isaac is to address Isaac's nature, a sinfulness that he inherited from Adam, Noah, Abraham, and everybody in between. 
As Paul later wrote in Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man and spread to everyone. Despite being Abraham's heir, with all of Abraham's faithfulness, Isaac's sinful nature meant that he would fail God, just as his father had. Yet God's promise did not and will not change. And as we're about to see, God's faithfulness is fortunate for Isaac and for us. Even though God made this incredible promise to Isaac in verses one through five, we see from Isaac's example in the next section how easy it is to falter in our own walk with God. Look at verse six. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah. She was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my, she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. If you've been with us throughout this Genesis series, this story should sound familiar. Isaac's father, Abraham, pulled this stunt twice. And here, Isaac commits the same lie as his dad shortly after hearing of God's promise. Despite hearing directly from the creator of the universe that Isaac would receive blessings of offspring, land, and more, he cowered and made himself small before a regional ruler who he feared would have the hots for his wife. And please note that this Abimelech is likely a different Abimelech than the one in those previous versions. There have been many years that have passed, and Abimelech is a generic name by Philistine rulers. On one hand, there is something encouraging to see the great characters of the Bible falter, to see their weakness and their shortcomings. For me, at least, it makes them seem more human. Yet it is also a bit stupefying to imagine how God's directly communicated promise could be cast aside so quickly out of fear and desire for an easy way out. And as Jeremy covered in Genesis 12 and 20, there is no dancing around that Isaac knew was not only dishonest, but was committing a sin that even non-Jews knew to be immoral. When this Abimelech discovers Isaac's deceit, he has the same shocked response as the previous Abimelech. One of my people might easily have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. We see this sorry example of generational sin where the child repeats the sin of the father. In fact, we see breakdowns of all the relational contracts at every point in the story. Certainly there's Isaac and God, but also Isaac and Abraham, Isaac and Abimelech, and finally Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac has successes and failures in each. But ultimately it is God who fulfills Isaac's end of each of these relationships. Abimelech's shock and horror at Isaac's deceit must have been convicting, as the realization of sin should be for all of us. Isaac's faithlessness makes God's promise at the start of Genesis 26 all the kinder. He knew that Isaac would falter, yet the promise still remains. It is the overarching point of this section, and there is no way I can overemphasize that God's promise and faithfulness 
does not depend on people's righteousness. It depends on God's righteousness. It is also our sermon in a sentence. God is faithful even when his people fail. We do not obey God to earn salvation. We obey out of love and devotion to a God who loves us. So here's a recap of our takeaways so far. When circumstances are bleak, God is faithful. When we fail, God is faithful. But now I wanna look a little bit at the family relationships that are in this section. If you are somebody who has infrequently visited Mill Creek, it's certainly possible that your visits on January 9th and March 27th have you convinced that you're suffering a bad case of deja vu. On those dates, we learned how Abraham pulled the same attempt with the wife, sister Lie, that Isaac attempts in today's passage. It frankly seems like a bizarre story to repeat, so let's dig into why it's here. First, you may know in the Bible that it makes mention of children being punished for the guilt of their parents. You can see this in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. For those who have trauma-filled experiences with parents, these verses can range from unnerving to fear-inducing. I remember when my parents divorced, I perpetually heard the lie that I was going to repeat the same mistake with my marriage with Tara. It took much prayer, it took time in the word, and much counsel from friends to put that lie behind me. Despite the warning of sin passing from one generation to the next, there are numerous verses that emphasize how fathers and sons are judged on their own conduct. That's covered in Deuteronomy 24 and Ezekiel 18. This individual accountability is most explicit in Romans 14:12, when Paul specifies that each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. With that said, parents, we need to pay particular attention to this generational issue in this section. Since Lydia, my firstborn, arrived, I've been regularly praying that my kids would follow my example, only so far as my example is what God desires. There have been few things as attention-getting as seeing my kids emulate my behavior. As I mentioned before, I'm a lawyer, and my wife is an attorney as well. The first time that Lydia made a three-point argument as to why she should get another treat for reasons A, B, and C. It was both amusing <laughs> and unnerving, and also effective, I might add. Our kids are always watching both the good and the bad. While Isaac wasn't around to see Abraham hold his wife out as his, out as his sister twice, he surely would have heard the story. You can almost imagine it taking on a funny nature as the years went on. Abraham saying, hey, Sarah, remember that time when I called you my sister and the king gave us land, livestock, and a thousand shekels of silver? That was crazy. As I said before, the sins of parents are not attributed to their children but our words and actions have a profound influence on kids. If we are impatient and quick to anger, our children are likely to be impatient and quick to anger. If we overindulge in alcohol, our children are more likely to overindulge. Even if we speak lightly about our past sins, it will affect how our children view and treat their own sin. 
As we look at Isaac's repeat of his father's sin, we can find an important application in our own lives. Learn from parental mistakes. For parents with kids living at home, we should be honest about our own sins and shortcomings. There have been times when I have snapped at my kids, and it's no fun to confess that I was wrong and to ask for their forgiveness. But that's what I want to model because that's what God asks of us. When they ask about my experiences when I was younger, it is critical that I don't brush over the mistakes that I made or to treat lightly my past sins, even those that arguably worked out in the end. Regardless of whether our sins turn out terribly or they turn out as they did for Abraham and Isaac, we should never lose sight that earthly outcomes do not minimize the seriousness of sin in separating us from God. And we parents should make this message clear to our children. In Abraham and Isaac's situation, the blessings that emerged after their sins were only due to God's forgiveness and mercy, and we should not minimize the wrongdoing. One related point for application. While I directed this section to current parents with kids in the house, there are also important points here for children, including my own kids. In 1 Corinthians, on two different occasions, Paul instructs the church, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Kids of all ages who are listening, which is all of us, you should do the same in relation to your own parents. Honor and obey your parents. It's one of the Ten Commandments, after all. But be aware that Christ is our ultimate model for how we think, speak, and act. Isaac demonstrated how easy it is to mimic the good and the bad that parents demonstrate. In the beginning of Genesis 26, we see Isaac living in faithfulness despite facing the famine. But that also gave way to the same sinfulness of Abraham. Be on guard then, children, that you are imitating your parents in the ways that they are imitating Jesus. So here's a quick recap. There are two practical reasons why God restated his Abrahamic promise to Isaac. First, to reassure Isaac when his circumstances looked bleak. Second, to restate that God's promise is guaranteed even when his people fail. And almost immediately after God made his promise to Isaac, he messed up and committed the same sin as his father Abraham, which is our third takeaway. God is faithful even when our parents fail. As we move to the final verses of this section, I want to call attention to the character that is too often overlooked in this story, Rebecca. It may be because of my daughters, but when I think about this section, I find it particularly heartbreaking. As Isaac and Rebecca moved to Gerar, she might have recognized the practicality of Isaac's lie, but it still must also have felt like a betrayal. Keep in mind the dynamics of the gender roles in those days. Rebecca was almost wholly dependent on Isaac, and in the moment that she needed his protection and care, he let her down completely. Isaac's failure and Rebecca's subsequent hardship demonstrate that our sin affects more than ourselves. Fortunately for Rebecca, the same grace that God extended to Isaac when he lied also extended to Rebecca. Even when Isaac failed Rebecca, God did not fail Rebecca. So let's look again at what the text says. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. God protected Rebekah, even when Isaac did not. Let me explain why this is important. Years ago, Pastor Jeremy recommended a book that I am in turn recommending to you. 
Tim Keller's Preaching, Communicating Faith in an Age of Skepticism. I'll admit that I put off reading this book largely because I am seldom up here in this capacity. But even if you never step foot in the pulpit, this book is incredibly valuable for helping you to understand what makes a sermon grounded on biblical teaching. One of Keller's reoccurring themes is that sermons should continuously point to Jesus. Whether it is the Old Testament or the New Testament, every section directs readers to Jesus. So too should sermons. And one excerpt from the book particularly stuck with me all these years later. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Now we can say to God, Now we know that you love us, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love. Jeremy made this point beautifully on Easter Sunday, when he walked through Isaac's willingness to be the sacrificial son. Yet it was Jesus who was the better Isaac as the perfect sacrifice to atone for all of our sins. This connection prompts another way that Jesus is the better Isaac, and it relates to Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac and Rebekah were going to Gerar, the subtext of his words were essentially, I'll be your husband, except when it's scary. When other people are around, we're just going to play it cool, pretend to be brother and sister. I adore my wife. She is one of the wisest, most capable, and lovely people that I know and I am endlessly filled with joy when I get to introduce her as my wife. How sad would it be when this opportunity arose if I gave the passive, yeah, she's my sister. Not only would people be horribly offended and weirded out, but they would be shocked at such disloyalty. With Jesus, we have no risk of disloyalty or rejection because he is the better Isaac. Over and again throughout the Bible, we see God use the marriage analogy. Israel as the faithless wife, God as the faithful husband. Or Ephesians, where Paul describes the church as the beloved bride of Christ. Language that we see again in Revelation with the new heaven as the spotless bride of Christ and Jesus as the groom. Isaac was a faithful and godly man. Thanks, bud. Appreciate it. You'd think for all the time that I spent going through this that I'd be able to keep it together for just this whole 25 minutes, but no. Isaac was a faithful and godly man, yet he was still a man. In Jesus, we see man perfected. In Hebrews 11, the author references Isaac, who lived in tents and was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose design and builder is God. In Revelation 21, we learn that those who follow Jesus will see that city. Isaac sojourned in Gerar when his land was without water. Jesus will someday give water to the thirsty from the spring of life and require no payment from us. Isaac shrank in fear in the original promised land and left his bride unprotected and neglected. Jesus will return as the conquering bridegroom and king who will clothe his bride in fine linen, bright and pure. In Isaac, we see faithfulness and we see faithlessness. In Jesus, we have a savior who will never let us down. He will never fail us.
He is indeed the better Isaac. While Isaac failed to uphold his end of the contractual relationships to God, to his father, to his wife, and to Abimelech, Jesus comes as the better Isaac. He is the son who perfectly reflects the goodness of his father. He's the loving husband who lays down his life for his bride. He is the faithful servant who perfectly serves the heavenly king. As I mentioned in the beginning, a contract requires two people exchanging something of value. But here is the beauty and promise to everyone who wants it. God's promises are not human contracts. As it relates to God, you have nothing to give. You have nothing of value that can earn his favor. When Isaac was faithless, God was faithful. When I am faithless, God is faithful. When you are faithless, God is faithful. Because of Jesus is the better Isaac, you need only ask for salvation. In Jesus as our Savior and King, we have hope. And the promise made to Abraham and Isaac will also be true for us. Paul sums it up in Galatians 3. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. That's a contract that doesn't take 200 pages to describe. And it's one that is enforceable for all believers, regardless of our failure to hold up our end of the bargain. Thanks be to God. For anyone here who is wrestling with this question about whether you belong to Jesus, I would love to speak to you about it. I know any of the other elders here today would love to do so as well. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the beautiful promises that you make. We thank you for the hope that we have. Even when we let you down, we know that you are constant and never changing, and your love for us never fails. Let us remember this always, Lord. Thank you for your blessings. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.